of Favoritism, Part 2, James chapter 2, verses 8 to 13. If ye fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, ye do well. But if ye have respect to persons, ye commit sin, and are convinced that the law is transgressors. For whosoever shall keep the whole law, and yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all. For he that said, Do not commit adultery, said also, Do not kill. Now if thou commit no adultery, yet if thou kill, thou art become a transgressor of the law. So speak ye, and so do, as they that shall be judged by the law of liberty. For he shall have judgment without mercy, that has showed no mercy, and mercy rejoiceth against judgment. The Folly of Favoritism, Part 2 How can those who claim to know Christ so disregard the plain command of James 2, verse 1? My brethren, have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with respect to persons. The New Testament church was radically countercultural. It consisted of Jews and Greeks, slaves and slave owners, worshiping together. James was particularly addressing the problem of showing partiality to the rich and disregarding the poor. That his words apply to any sort of partiality based on external factors. But if ye have respect to persons, ye commit sin, and are convinced of the law as transgressors. 2 verse 9. That seems pretty clear. And yet we may sometimes congratulate ourselves for not committing certain big sins while we shrug off our little sins or our pet sins as no big deal. This problem of partiality still plagues the church today. Here it is addressing partiality towards our own sins. So James' teaching here is relevant for our times. Now, illustration. When Oxford and Cambridge universities decided to admit commoners as students in the 1600s, the unprecedented flood of new innovative thought had a tremendous impact on British society. Each student was listed on the record by name and title. The commoner's name was listed with the Latin inscription sine nobilitate, meaning without nobility. The abbreviation for this was S period nob period, which within the rigid class systems of the time had, been, had both positive and negative connotations. Those with nobility would treat those without nobility differently. They would treat those that were signed nobilitate or S dot nob dot differently. They would look down on them, consider them inferior or not as sophisticated as they were. Now soon this term became synonymous with those who insist on their gentility and those who despise others considered inferior in rank. Those who thought they had the rank, those who thought they were better, would treat these that were s.nob differently. That soon became the word snob, S-N-O-B, is still in use today. As we shall see, James views snobbery as not being at all Christian. James is preeminently a moral theologian. For him, what we do says far more about the authenticity of our faith than what we say we believe. What we do says far more about the authenticity of our faith than what we say we believe. A heart which practices favoritism toward the privileged and ignores the poor is imperiled, to say the least. In this lesson, 
we will continue to see how James shows how partiality relates to God's law. Last time, we looked at the first two reasons for why favoritism is wrong. One, it undermines God's authority and position. That's in verses 1 through 5 of chapter 2. And the second one, it aligns you with God's enemies. That's in verses 6 to 7 of chapter 2. In this message, we're studying the third reason. That is found in verses 8 to 13 of chapter 2. That third reason is favoritism is wrong because it violates God's law of love. Now here's the flow of this thought. To show partiality violates the second great commandment of God's law, to love your neighbor as yourself. To break God's law is sin, and to break even one part of it is to break the whole. Since God's law will be standard by which everyone will be judged, we should judge others in the same manner as we judge ourselves. We should live in light of the coming judgment by Jesus, especially by showing mercy to the poor. James starts out positively enough. If you fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Ye do well. Now to catch the force of what James is saying here, we need to understand that the Ten Commandments, in fact, the entire law, was summarized in two commandments. The first being a vertical commandment found in Deuteronomy 6, 4-5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, and with all thine soul, and with all thy might. So the first summarization commandment was to love God with all that you are. And now the second commandment that summarizes all the commandments, it is a horizontal commandment. It's found in Leviticus 19, verse 18. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. I am the Lord. So the Ten Commandments, the entire law, can be summarized in two commandments. The first one being a vertical commandment, to love God with all that you are. And the second being a horizontal commandment, to love your neighbor as yourself. So James' readers knew that if they truly loved God, they would fulfill the first four of the Ten Commandments. They would put no other gods before him. They would not make an idol. They would not misuse the name of the Lord, and they would remember to keep the Sabbath holy. And following this, if they loved their neighbors as themselves, they would keep the last six of the Ten Commandments. They would honor their fathers and mothers. They would not murder. They would not commit adultery. They would not steal. They would not give false testimony against their neighbors, and they would not covet. Christ himself affirmed the comprehensiveness of the two commandments which summarize all this when a legal expert asked which of the commandments is the greatest. Jesus answered him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like unto it, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law, and the prophets. To bring more context and some application to these thoughts, Jesus expanded the definition of neighbor to mean any needy human whom God gives us an opportunity to help. We can cross-reference this thought with Leviticus 19.18 and then a passage in Luke chapter 10 verses 25 through 37. I'm just going to read Luke 10 verses 29 and then verse 36 to 37. But he willing to justify himself, son unto Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And then down in verses 36 to 37, 
Which now of these three thinkest thou was neighbor unto him that fell among the thieves? And he said, He that showed mercy on him. Then said Jesus unto him, Go, and do thou likewise. So we have it from the lips of Jesus that if we love God and our neighbor, we fulfill the whole law. The problem is, no one has ever perfectly fulfilled this except Jesus. Thus we understand that the law is meant to bring us to the end of ourselves, to prepare us to humbly receive the gift of Christ's righteousness by faith. Then as Christians indwelt by the Spirit, we can begin to love God and love people as we ought to, and thus fulfill the law of God. God's law is love, but partiality violates that law. James 2, 8-9 If you fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Ye do well. But if ye have respect to persons, ye commit sin, and are convinced of the law as transgressors. In verse 8, James seems to be anticipating his readers' objections. James, by showing the rich man to the best seat, were only following the biblical injunction to show proper honor where honor is due. After all, if we were rich, that's how we would want to be treated. We're just following the golden rule. Now possibly, in his reply, possibly with tongue-in-cheek, James says, That's fine. If you claim to be fulfilling God's law of love, you're doing well. Keep it up. Now as his readers may have begun to congratulate themselves, James lands a knockout punch in verse 9. But... If ye have respect to persons, ye commit sin, and are convinced of the law as transgressors. But if ye have respect to persons, ye commit sin. If we want to please God, to obey Him, and to discharge our responsibilities towards Him, James is telling us here, he makes it very clear what we are to do. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. That is the summation of the whole man-word aspect of the Mosaic Law. The God-word aspect is to love God. The man-word aspect is to love thy neighbor. James calls the law the royal law. Primarily, this means that it comes from the King, the Lord Jesus Christ. It emphasizes the authority of the law. James has just mentioned in verse 5 that believers are heirs of the kingdom. As such, we must live under the law of the king. So the royal law probably refers to the whole law as interpreted and handed over to the church in the teaching of Jesus. That law is contained in scripture. The Bible is our authoritative rule for life. It reveals God's will for how we should think and live. So we should always read and study it with a view of how it applies to our daily lives. James singles out the command in Leviticus 19.18, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. This is cited six times in the Synoptic Gospels and also in Romans 13.9 and Galatians 5.14, so eight times total in the New Testament, in addition to this reference here in James. Jesus referred to it as the second great commandment. After thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul, and with all thy mind, Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven. He added in verse 40 of Matthew 22, On these two commandments hang all the law 
and the prophets. Just prior to the command to love our neighbor, Moses wrote in Leviticus 19.15, Ye shall do no unrighteousness in judgment. Thou shalt not respect the person of the poor, nor honor the person of the mighty. But in righteousness shalt thou judge thy neighbor. So part of biblical love for one's neighbor includes treating each person fairly and impartially or without any favoritism involved. Now there are only two great commandments. There are not three. There are two great commandments. Number one, love God. And number two, love your neighbor. Love of self is assumed as the standard by which we must love our neighbor. One commentator said this about these two great commandments. To express how profoundly we must be inclined to love our neighbors, the Lord measured it by the love of ourselves because he had at hand no more violent or stronger emotion than this. So the point of the second great commandment is this. You care about your own needs. Show the same care for the needs of others. You care about your own feelings. Show the same care for the feeling of others. You care about your own desires. Show the same care for the desires of others. You care about how others treat you. Treat them as you would want to be treated. But in case anyone doesn't get it, James goes on in verse 9 of chapter 2 to apply the law of love specifically to partiality. To show partiality to the rich while you treat the poor with contempt, or to show partiality based on any external factor, is to commit sin. To show partiality based on your own pet sin, not judging it in your life, but you'll judge it in someone else's life, is sin. In case we didn't understand those plain words, James adds, you are convinced of the law as transgressors. You are convicted a transgressor of the law. You're guilty. Now, like a seasoned trial attorney, James knew what his readers would try to squirm out from under this guilty verdict by saying, well, okay, maybe we've not treated everyone fairly, but it's not that big of a deal. After all, we haven't been committing adultery. We haven't murdered anybody. We keep the important commandments of the law, even if we haven't always treated the poor as we should. Anticipating their self-justification, James continues, To violate God's law on any level is a serious matter. Murder is not just a serious matter. Adultery is not just a serious matter. To violate the law on any level is a serious matter. James 2 verses 10 to 11. For whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all. For he has said, Do not commit adultery, said also, Do not kill. Now if thou commit no adultery, yet if thou kill, thou art become a transgressor of the law. 4 in this verse shows that James is strengthening his argument from verse 9. He argues that if anyone keeps the entire law, something no one has ever done, but for the sake of argument, he assumes that it is possible here, but stumbles in one point, he is guilty of all. In other words, the law is a unity, like a chain. A single broken link breaks the chain. Or the law is like a mirror, or a window. A single small crack means the whole thing is broken. James' point is this. Whatever the sin, it renders you a lawbreaker. 
You can be a good person in every other way. But if you break the law, you are a lawbreaker. For example, if a man is guilty of murder, when he goes before the court, it does not matter if he has been a faithful husband and father, if he has never had a traffic ticket, if he has never robbed a bank, or if he has never been beat up his neighbor. All that matters is, did he commit murder? If so, he is guilty of breaking the law. Why does James bring up in verse 11 these two commandments, adultery and murder? And why does he mention them in the reverse order that they occur in the Ten Commandments? Well, we can't be certain, but it may be that James again is anticipating the way his readers would respond to his argument. They may have thought, well, I may be guilty of partiality towards the poor, but I've been faithful to my wife. So James mentions that first. He may go on to mention murder to imply that to commit partiality is a very serious offense. Discrimination against the poor and failure to love one's neighbor is sometimes mentioned along with murder. For example, Jeremiah 22 verse 3 states, Thus saith the Lord, Execute ye judgment and righteousness, and deliver the spoil out of the land of the oppressors, and do no wrong. Do no violence to the stranger, the fatherless, nor the widow. Neither shed innocent blood in this place. Do no wrong, do no violence to the stranger, the fatherless, or nor the widows. Execute ye judgment in righteousness towards the fatherless, towards the widows. Do not show partiality, do not be partial, do not show favoritism to others over the fatherless or the widows. And then he adds on, neither shed innocent blood in this place. So sometimes the sin of partiality is mentioned along with the sin of murder. The sin of partiality is a very serious offense in God's eyes. Execute ye judgment and righteousness, or do not be guilty of favoritism or partiality. So James is saying, don't dismiss partiality as no big deal. It is a big deal, just as adultery and murder are big deals. There is one other aspect of James' argument here. The phrase, for he has said, which refers to God, a commentator explained it this way. If we view the law as a series of individual commandments, we could assume that disobedience of a particular commandment incurred guilt for that commandment only. But in fact, the individual commandments are part and parcel of one indivisible whole, because they reflect the will of the one lawgiver. To violate a commandment is to disobey God himself and render a person guilty before him. Now, it is not the Old Testament law per se that James urges perfect compliance with, but the royal law, verse 8, or the law of liberty in verse 12. This law takes up within it the Old Testament law, but is understood through Jesus' fulfillment of it. To show partiality is to violate God's law of love. That, James argues, is a serious matter, because it renders you guilty before God. Now he concludes that we must speak and act as those who will stand before God for judgment. James 2, 12-13 says, So speak ye, and so do, as they that shall be judged by the law of liberty. For he shall have judgment without mercy, that hath showed no mercy. And mercy rejoiceth against judgment. Believers will be judged by the law of liberty. James says so in verse 12. So speak ye, and so do, as they that shall be judged by the law of liberty. Some may wonder, I thought that believers would not be judged at all. Since Christ bore our judgment on the cross, what does it mean then to be judged by the law of liberty? 
Well, Jesus said in John chapter 5, verse 24, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that heareth my word, and believeth on him that sent me, hath everlasting life, and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. And then the Apostle Paul states clearly in Romans 8, 1, There is therefore no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. These and other similar verses show that Christ bore the punishment that we deserve for our sins. If we have trusted in him, we will not face God's eternal wrath at the final judgment or the great white throne judgment. It's found in Revelation chapter 20. We will not face that. But even though we do not need to fear that awful judgment if we are in Christ, Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 5.10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body, according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. With that in mind, let's reread James 2, verse 12. So speak ye, and so do, as they that shall be judged by the law of liberty. Here at the judgment seat of Christ, we're going to be judged by the law of liberty. Now the word bad in 2 Corinthians 5.10 literally means worthless. Our sins have been judged and removed from us through the death of Christ. But our lives as believers will undergo the Lord's heart-level evaluation. Those things which were done out of love for Christ and for his glory will be rewarded. Those things which were done out of selfish motives are worthless in God's sight and will be burned as wood, hay, and stubble. 1 Corinthians 3.11-15 James again refers to the law as the law of liberty. He may use this term to point to the fact of the new covenant that Jesus inaugurated. Rather than keeping the external rules of the old law, the new commandment of love is written on our hearts. Thus, there is a new motivation to do everything that we do out of love for God and for others. James makes three points here. Number one, our words will be judged. Note the words spoken to the two visitors in James 2 verse 3. What we say to people and how we say it will come up before God. Even our careless words will be judged, Matthew 12, 36. Of course, the words we speak come from the heart. So when God judges the words, he's examining the heart, Matthew 12, 34 to 37. Jesus emphasized caution when speaking in some of his warnings in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5 and chapter 7. When James says, so speak ye and so do, he is referring to our total contact. Words alone are not enough. Because it is easy to say to a poor brother, Be ye warmed and filled. James 2.16 Our words need to be accompanied with godly actions. So speak ye and so do. Our words need to be accompanied with godly actions. We need to walk the walk, not just talk the talk, so to speak. James is telling us to live in light of the fact that we will soon stand before Jesus Christ, who will reward us for our faithful obedience, but also save us through the fire as our worthless deeds go up in smoke. So number one, our words will be judged. Number two, our deeds will be judged. It is true that God remembers our sins against us no more, Jeremiah 31, 34, Hebrews 10, 17. But our sins affect our character and our works. We cannot sin lightly and serve faithfully. We cannot sin lightly 
and serve faithfully. God forgives our sins when we confess them to him, but he cannot change their consequences. So our words will be judged, our deeds will be judged, and our attitudes will be judged. James contrasted two attitudes, showing mercy to others and refusing to show mercy. If we have not been merciful towards others, God can be merciful towards us. However, we must not twist this truth into a lie. It does not mean that we earn mercy by showing mercy, because it is impossible to earn mercy. If it is earned, it is not mercy. Nor does it mean that we should be soft on sin and never judge sin in the lives of others. Mercy and justice both come from God, so they are not competitors. Where God finds repentance and faith, he is able to show mercy. Where he finds rebellion and unbelief, he must administer justice. It is the heart of the sinner that determines the treatment he gets. Let me repeat that. It is the heart of the sinner that determines the treatment he gets. Our Lord's parable, Matthew 18, illustrates this truth. The parable is not illustrating salvation, but forgiveness between fellow servants. If we forgive our brothers, then we have the kind of heart that is open toward the forgiveness of God. So we shall be judged by the law of liberty. So why does James use this title for God's law? For one thing, when we obey God's law, it frees us from sin and enables us to walk in liberty, Psalm 119.45. Also, law prepares us for liberty. A child must be under rules and regulations because he's not mature enough to handle the decisions and the demands of life. He is given outward discipline so that he might develop inward discipline and one day be free of rules. Liberty does not mean license. Liberty does not mean license. License, doing whatever I want to do, is the worst kind of bondage. Liberty does not mean license, and license, just thinking I can do whatever I want to do, is actually the worst kind of bondage. Liberty means the freedom to, do, to be all that I can be in Jesus Christ. License is confinement. Liberty is fulfillment. License is confinement. Liberty is fulfillment. Finally, the word is called the law of liberty. The law of liberty. Because God sees our hearts and knows what we would have done had we been free to do so. God's word can change our heart and give us the desire to do God's will so that we obey from inward compulsion and not outward constraint. There is one obvious message to this section. Our beliefs should control our behavior. Our beliefs should control our behavior. If we really believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that God is gracious, that his word is true, and that one day he will judge us, then our conduct will reveal our convictions. Let me say that again. If we really believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and that God is gracious, that God's word is true, and that one day God will judge us, then our conduct will reveal our convictions. One of the tests of the reality of our faith is how we treat other people. Can we pass the test? Would we pass the test? So in conclusion, how we need to thank God for the mercy bestowed upon us, regardless of how we look, regardless of the sins we have committed, regardless of our mistakes or, or our, the, our past. The ground is always level at the cross. How we need to recognize that it is sinful 
to think we are better than someone else. It is sinful to look down on others. It is sinful to judge sin in other people's lives and not judge that same sin in ourselves. It does not matter who the man is. It does not matter who he is before God. That man is on the same plane as we are. We are sinners and needed to come to the cross and accept Christ as our Savior, just like all sinners need to do. Are we impartial and even-handed? Are we giving proper attention to every brother and sister like we should? To the one who may never be able to give us anything back? Do we make appointments or plans with impartiality and without respect to persons? Do the factors of friendship slide into favoritism and partiality? Do we love, show compassion, make time in our schedules, and show respect for others irrespective of external factors? Irrespective of the person's past. Do we allow someone's past, their appearance, or other factors out of their control to influence what we think of them or how we interact with them? Genuine love in Christ, who loved us while we were unlovable and sacrificially gave himself for us while we were impoverished, is to not show respect for persons, but is to show partiality towards them.